Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, good evening. I would like to just begin our time actually by thanking Pastor Isaac and the entire team here at Emmanuel Baptist. It is no small thing to put an event like this on. There's been a lot of work behind the scenes, as you can tell, and if you see some of the volunteers or you pass by this couple, please tell them thank you uh, for all the work that they have put in. It is an honor to be here. It's an honor to speak on the subject of marriage, and the truth is uh, there are a few subjects that I believe that are more worthy of our attention in the age in which we live. We are living in a very confused age. Our, our generation, our society is a confused people. Our society has no idea what this institution truly is or how it is to be faithfully lived out. In our culture, uh, unfortunately, even in the church, marriage is often treated is merely something that is a source of convenience for our lives. It's, it's treated as something that is beneficial to us as individuals so long as it is serving as a means to an end, so long as it is bringing about happiness or pleasure or economic stability or even a sense of purpose or self-worth. As long as any of that is being produced, then great, we see the benefit of it. Uh, But as soon as those things go, or as soon as the troubles outweigh the benefits, marriage is treated as disposable, which is why we are in the top five countries in the world of highest divorce rates, and it puts us in the top countries in the history of the world for highest divorce rates. However, as if our cultural attitude towards marriage wasn't bad enough, marriage is directly under attack in our culture. Uh, with the constant attempting to eliminate the distinction of the sexes and the deliberate confusing of the roles of men and women. Even the very definition of marriage itself has been attempted to be redefined in the highest courts of our land, the Supreme Court case of Obergefell in 2015. But at the end of the day, who cares? Why does it matter if we treat marriage pragmatically? Why does it matter if the divorce rates are through the roof? Why does it matter if marriage gets redefined? Why don't we just eat, drink, be merry, and do what we want? For tomorrow we die. So who cares? Just let everyone do what makes them happy. I mean, that's the driving ethic of our culture, is it not? YOLO. You only live once. Whatever makes you happy. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that some of you came here today, some of you have signed up for this conference, some of you have given up a weekend simply because you want a happier marriage. You are not happy with where your marriage is today, and you are hoping for something that could remedy that problem, or at the very least, help. And if that is your reason for being here, I want to tell you that my goal tonight is to give you a different reason why you should be here. 
Now certainly the different sessions that we are going to dive into are going to get into various practical matters such as decision making and finances and conflict resolution and other things that are very important to navigate in our marriages. The scripture has much to say on these issues. If you apply the wisdom of scripture in these various areas of your life, you will see change in your life, no doubt about it. But the why matters. The motivation matters. The foundation that we build upon matters. Because if we are not building upon the right foundation, in the end, it will all crumble anyway. There is a reason why we should care about our marriages. There is a reason why we should guard ourselves from treating marriage with contempt like the society in which we live. In fact, Scripture commands us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that marriage is to be held in honor among all. The question is, why? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight, we're going to be laying the foundation for everything else in this conference. And we're going to be doing that by looking at two things. Where marriage comes from and what it is for. We're going to look at the origin of marriage and the purpose of marriage. And if we get this, then we have a foundation from which to work on everything else. But if you miss this, you miss it all. This is absolutely vital to understanding and building a marriage that pleases God. So let's look at the foundation. We're going to do that from Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or you can reach a pew Bible, I would encourage you to open God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible speaks on marriage in, in countless locations, but if there is one passage in the Bible that is the quintessential passage on marriage, it is without a doubt this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. I imagine that you'll probably be spending a lot of time in this chapter over the next 24 hours. Now, I'm not going to be covering this entire section tonight, but I do want to read the entire section on marriage uh, just to be, so we can get the full context in our minds. So if you're there, read with me starting in verse 22, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Verse 22, Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is his, himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now tonight, our focus is going to be on verses 31 and 32. But what the Apostle Paul has done through this entire section is describe and give commands for how marriage is to function in the differing roles as husband and wife. And more than that, throughout this section, he has given the theological reason why those roles are to function in this way. And we could, we could, if we could boil it down, he's basically said, he's told us that wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ because husbands are the heads of their wives just as Christ is the head of the church. And on the flip side, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In the same way that Christ sacrificed himself for the church, husbands are to sacrifice themselves for their wives. But again, the question is, Why? Why, Paul? Why must we live our marriages out in this fashion? Where are you getting this? Well, apart from the fact that Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is God's holy word which we ought to obey, apart from all of that, he actually gives us the reason. When you get to verse 31, Paul gets to the ultimate reason Why marriage is to be lived out in the way he has just laid it out. And he starts with creation. Look at what he said in verse 31. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now the question is, what is he talking about, and what does this have to do with creation? Well, this is actually a direct word-for-word quote of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2. Paul brings this out, and he goes back to the very beginning of all things in order to demonstrate that marriage is supposed to function in a certain way because marriage is designed in a certain way. Marriage is not an institution that mankind created. It was not anybody's idea. It was not a creation of any organized religion. It was not just a practical solution for society. No government came up with marriage in order to keep things under control. No, marriage is actually the oldest institution in the history of mankind. It preceded every form of organized government, and it preceded every form of organized religion. Nobody came up with this. Marriage is God's idea. It is His design. It is His creation. That's why the first place that marriage is found in the history of the world is in the creation narrative of Genesis. Marriage is part of the very fabric and functionality of the way this world is created. It's just as much a part of the created order as is the sun or the moon or the stars. It's as much a part of creation as the earth, the land, the animals, the sea, everything. Marriage is a part of creation. It was not an afterthought. It was intentional from the beginning. Marriage is God's good design for how this world is to function. And for that reason... There is only one authoritative voice on what marriage is and how it is to operate. 
When an individual or even a government attempts to redefine marriage, they are attempting to redefine creation, which is impossible. And in so doing, they are fighting against God Himself. They are fighting against His design. And the very attempt of it is an abomination. But for us as Christians, as men and women who fear God, if you want to have a marriage that operates in the way it was designed to be, then you need to take your cues not from the culture around us, not from Hollywood, not from pop psychology or self-help books, and not even from your own fallen desires, but rather from the great designer of marriage, from God Himself. And that's why Paul quotes from the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 2. To help us all see this, I want us to hear that passage in its original context. You can flip over there with me if you like, or you can just listen to me read it. But we need to see this starting in Genesis 2, Genesis 2.18. Up to this point, God has created the earth. He has created man. He has placed the man in the garden. He has ordered the man to work it and to keep it, and He has given the man His instructions. And then in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed." This is the first marriage. This is where marriage comes from. This is the design of marriage. And this is where Paul is drawing his theology from. So everything that Paul has been saying in Ephesians chapter 5 has been based upon God's creation and the design of man and woman in the institution of marriage. You know, it's not uncommon to read others or or hear other pastors talk about Ephesians 5 being a description of so-called Christian marriage. And that's true in a sense, but referring to it that way could actually veil a, a very important truth here. Because this isn't merely Christian marriage. This is marriage. All marriages are designed by God to function in this way. The Christian aspect of it, the effect of the gospel, is a restoration to the original design. In other words, Christianity did not change the design and the function of marriage. It simply revealed it with more clarity and restored it. But all marriages, whether among unbelievers or believers, are designed to function like this because God created it in that way from the very beginning. 
Man is meant to leave behind the authority of his household in which he was raised. Mother and father are no longer his closest family. He leaves that paternal order of his father's household in order to form a new one by joining himself together with his wife. The ESV uses the term hold fast. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That word there means to join or to unite or to cleave to. Uh, The word was used often to speak of joining and mixing alloys, metals. Once mixed together, they could not be separated. And in order for this to happen properly, one's separation from prior family is necessary in order for that uniting to take place, in order for a new unit to be formed. When this happens, the Scripture says the two become one flesh. And that is what marriage is. A one flesh union between one man and one woman. That is the biblical definition of marriage. And the idea of the one flesh union is both a spiritual reality and a physical experience. But the two individuals really do become one entity, a married couple. The one flesh union speaks of the permanent giving of oneself over to another. Marriage is not a mere agreement. Marriage is not a contract of sorts between two parties. No, it is a covenant before God that once entered into, the two become one. This is why Paul says in in verse 28, Ephesians 5, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. In marriage, the two are so united that to care for the other is to care for self. Husbands, her well-being is your well-being. Wives, his well-being is your well-being. Why? Because you are one. You are a one flesh union. It's for this reason that marital intimacy is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. The two are one flesh. The truth is, when two people come together and get married, they are not ultimately married because the preacher declares them to be so or because the state recognizes them to be so. No, they are married because in the exchanging of their covenantal vows to one another, God is present in that moment to unite these two individuals into one. It is God who joins them together. Which is why Jesus strictly warned, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is why God explicitly says in Malachi, I hate divorce. Divorce is an act of man that destroys the work of God. Your marriage is a work of God. And it needs to be honored as such. That is why the writer of Hebrews says marriage is to be held in honor among all. Meaning you are not only to honor your own marriage, you are to honor marriage. You are not only to guard your marriage, you are to guard others' marriages. We are all to be very careful that we never say nor do anything that could cause division in another marriage or in our own marriage. To do so is to work against the work of God. Because marriage is His design, it's His doing. And this is where marriage comes from. 
But now, Paul gives us a little more here. He not only appeals to where marriage comes from, but he also reveals what it is ultimately for. Look back at verse 31 and 32. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, Paul just took a turn there that nobody expected. I can guarantee that his original audience did not see this coming. The first time you ever read Ephesians chapter 5, you did not see this coming. He looks back at the creation of marriage in the garden and says from the very beginning, this was a reference to Christ in the church. No one saw that. Fittingly, he uses the language of mystery here. This is language that Paul uses quite a bit. He's already used it twice in this letter, both in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And you'll see him use it again in chapter 6. In chapter 6, the way he uses it is quite helpful to understand what he means by it. Chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Pray for me that I might open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The mystery language that is found in various places of the New Testament is always a reference to something that was concealed in times past, but through the gospel has been revealed in Christ. And what has been revealed in Christ with regards to our marriage is that the entire purpose of marriage from the very beginning was to point us to the gospel. Specifically to the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ and His bride. That's what marriage is about. That is why it exists. You see, when Christ came down from His position of glory and He entered our world, He did so on a mission. He was on a mission to redeem His bride. He came for her. He sought her. And He died for her. That's why He came. If you've ever heard the old story about the hero who slays the dragon and rescues the girl, that story is ultimately about Christ. That story finds its truest fulfillment in Christ Himself. However, it's important to note that He did not do this. He did not come because we are worthy or because we deserved it. On the contrary, the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, due to our sin against God, we are all children of wrath. Apart from Christ, we deserve nothing but condemnation. And yet He came out of love for His bride, for His people, and for the glory of His Father, He came. That shows us that His covenantal faithfulness was not dependent upon us. It was not dependent upon the other party. And neither should yours be. You are to be faithful to your covenantal vows irrespective of how you are being treated by the other party. Whether or not your spouse is acting as your enemy in any given situation does not excuse you from being faithful to your covenant. But this verse, verse 32, answers the question of why. Why Paul has been using the relationship of Christ and the church as a model for marriage. 
I mean, have you ever stopped to ask why he's doing that? Why is it that wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ? Why are husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church? I mean, sure, it's really beautiful that he's using Christ and the church as a model for marriage, but why? Why is it a model for marriage? The answer is this. The answer is verse 32. From the very beginning of creation... Marriage was created as a type. It was created as a foreshadow of things to come. Marriage is an earthly representative of a heavenly reality. The everlasting covenant between Christ and the church is the fulfillment. Marriage is the type, the covenant between Christ and the church the new covenant is the antitype. Marriage is the shadow. The new covenant is the substance. Marriage is the earthly representative. The everlasting covenant is the heavenly reality. That is why it serves as a model for marriage. Because it is the ultimate point of marriage. To show us a glimpse of the nature of the relationship between Christ and His people. This is why God created it. The reality is Christ has joined himself together with the church. He has devoted himself to his people. We as his people are in union with Christ, never to be separated. We have been united to him and it is because of our union with Christ that all of the redemptive benefits of Christ have been credited to us. Just as the Bible says that we are co-heirs with our wives in the grace of life, everything we have is ours together, well, so it is with Christ. Because of our union with Christ, we are co-heirs with Him in the grace of eternity. The inheritance that the Father has bestowed upon the Son, His divine Son, we are partakers in. As Romans 8 says, we are co-heirs with Christ. He has brought us in to His own reward. And one day, the shadows of earthly marriage will give away to the substance. And this is why marriage is, in fact, a temporary institution. Because it is not an end unto itself. We will not be married to our spouses in glory. Now, for some of you, that actually might be very hard to hear. For others of you, you just breathe a sigh of relief. But marriage is a temporary institution. As Jesus said, in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. But do not think that there is loss there. There is not. The beauty of marriage will give way to something that is infinitely greater as it finds its purpose and its fulfillment in Christ. Very soon we will all find ourselves at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the start of eternity in which God has said in Ephesians chapter 2, it is His purpose to display the immeasurable riches of His grace to the church, to the bride of Christ for all of eternity. That's what's coming. Brothers and sisters, we cannot fathom nor even imagine what is in store for us because Christ has brought us in as His own. Because He has pledged His covenantal faithfulness to us and united Himself to us. And He will never be unfaithful to that. He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
The covenant between Christ and the church is an eternal covenant. And that covenant is the model for our marital covenants. By the grace of God, we want our marriages to reflect that. And that is your ultimate why. That is the foundation upon which you must build. That is the goal and purpose of every marriage. So if you've come here today with the hopes just to fix a couple problems so that you can have more happiness or a sense of self-fulfillment, you've come with the wrong purpose. And that's not to say that those things are not important. That's not to say that God doesn't give us those things. We do experience those things in marriage when things are going well and God's grace is shown in His kindness. But it is to say that those things are not ultimate. Those are side effects, if you will. Those are incidental to a healthy marriage rather than the point of a healthy marriage. The problem is if you make those things the goal, if you make them your aim, you will compromise what is ultimate in order to get there. No, our goal and our aim in marriage is the glory of God. And it is the reflection of the gospel. And we do that by living according to His design. It is for that reason that this book, God's Word, is the only authoritative guide for our marriages. As you dig into this over the next 24 hours, do so with the purpose of pursuing a marriage that rightly reflects God's ultimate design of marriage and God's ultimate purpose of marriage. Now, I want to end our time by addressing one other possibility here, by addressing those who may be here in a desperate state. If you're here because you've made just shipwreck of your marriage, or maybe you're here and you're not even really a Christian, you're not even really sure what all this is about. Maybe you saw that there's a conference going on and you thought, let's go see if they can help. The truth is, you can learn all the wisdom you want about how marriage is supposed to function, but at the end of the day, there is a more ultimate reality that you need to give thought to. As I said, marriage is a temporary experience that will come to an end at death. But death is not the end of existence. The Bible says it's been appointed for all men to die once and then comes judgment. And the truth is, we are a blip on the timeline of history. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And when it is all over, we will enter into eternity and we will give an account to God for how we conducted our lives and for how we conducted our marriages. Ecclesiastes 12 says that we will give an account for every deed. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. 1 Corinthians 4 it says that even our thoughts and our motives will be revealed on the great day of judgment. And Ezekiel 18 says the soul who sins shall die. Now if you are a thinking person, that is a terrifying prospect. And you need to understand that God does not grade on a curve. He will not be comparing you to anybody but himself. No, the reality is all of us have offended a holy God and we have no hope in ourselves. None. We need a Savior. But that is why Christ came. As God in the flesh, He lived out perfect righteousness, fulfilling the demands of the law. At the end of His life, He willingly went to the cross where the Father poured out His wrath against sin on His own beloved Son who never sinned. 
And three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that he is, in fact, God, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is to this day. And now all who trust in him, rather than themselves, will receive his righteous standing before God. The punishment that I deserve was placed upon Christ, and his righteousness has now been given to me. This is what we call the great exchange. And it is the only hope, it is the only hope that any of us have for standing in judgment and for living a life that is pleasing to God. The Bible says that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. If you want your marriage to be pleasing to God, you must start with faith in His Son. Receive forgiveness Start fresh and pursue a life and a marriage that is worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin to navigate this dark world on our own. But you sent your son to come and rescue his bride, to lay down his life for the one he loved. God, I ask that you would open eyes. I ask that you'd be working in the hearts of your people. And I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would grant them faith today. That you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, their need of him, and that they would repent and turn. Lord, would you do the work that only you can do? And would you be glorified in this conference, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.